Well, amen. It is great to be back here on the campus of Southwestern Seminary. Thank you for the opportunity to be here and to gather with you today. Thank you, Dr. Dockery, for having me. It's always good to be with somebody who can appreciate a good roll tide. Amen? <clears throat> no, seriously, it's an honor to be here. And I want to bring you greetings from thousands of church planters literally all across North America that are a part of the tribe that we work together with. I just came from San Diego, California on Saturday, flew to Oklahoma and preached there over the weekend. But in San Diego, we had a gathering of 600 planters and their wives that are all planting in the mountain and Pacific time zones. Uh, and I'm telling you, if you could be there in that room with those men and women of God that are joining in the mission of God, you would be so encouraged by what God is doing in North America and among us as Southern Baptists. I was so refreshed to be there. Barely got out of there. Southern California is having a winter apocalypse uh, that never happens in Southern California, but all the flights were delayed coming out of there because of that. But it's just a sweet, sweet time to be a part of what God's doing in the world. Amen. I also want to bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters in Christ in Las Vegas, Nevada. Now, maybe you didn't know you had brothers and sisters in Christ in Las Vegas, Nevada, but you do. God is working in that city, and it's where my family has called home for the last 22 years, and what a joy it's been to join in God's activity there. I'm not originally from Las Vegas. I'm originally from Alabama, so if you're from Alabama, you don't go to Las Vegas, and if you do, you don't tell anybody. Um, where I'm from, they don't think Las Vegas is hell, but they think you can smell it from there, like it's close. It's real close, but... We've seen God do unbelievable stuff. If you know anything about Las Vegas at all, you know it's called what city? What's it called? Exactly, right? Sin City. I have to enunciate after having lived in Las Vegas for 22 years and say I'm the president of Sind Network because after living in Las Vegas for 22 years, if you say it too fast, it sounds like I'm the president of Sin Network and you have to be careful coming from Vegas. But Here's what I know the scripture teaches. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And we have seen God and his grace do miraculous things in the city of Las Vegas and are privileged to be a part of it. I want to share with you today from God's word. You can go ahead if you want to and turn in your Bible to Philippians 4. I'm going to get there in just a minute. Uh, but let me breathe a word of prayer and then I want to say some things before we get to that text. Father, we pray right now for the power of your Holy Spirit to take your word and speak to our hearts. The reality is in a place like this, in a gathering like this, the last thing any of us need is just another sermon or another chapel service. But God, we really do need to hear your voice. God, we need a fresh encounter with the living God. We need you to take your word. We need you to, 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 to convict us of our sin. We need you to speak to us about your mission. We need you to open our eyes to what you're doing in the world. And God, we need you to lead us to that place of surrender where we say, yes, Lord, Lord, to join in what you're doing. So God, would you take your word and would you speak to us now? It's in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. September 1999 is when God interrupted my life and relocated my family from the Bible Belt all the way to Las Vegas, Nevada. We moved there 22 years ago to join in God's activity of 
seeing a church birthed in that city. I'm not going to talk about it in this sermon. I'm going to talk about it for a little bit at the round table afterwards. We're having a gathering uh, somewhere on campus. There's a round table taking place. I hope you're coming to that if you've been invited. And I'll be talking a little more about church planning strategy, but we did not go there and start a church like when it, what a lot of people talk about starting churches. Well, unfortunately, what a lot of church planting is in North America today is not starting churches, it's starting church services. And that's not the same thing. Starting a church service is not starting a church. You start a church with a city, not with a gathering. You start with a city and you engage the city with the gospel. And when you engage the city with the gospel, disciples are made. And when disciples are made, churches are born as a byproduct. Unfortunately, we flip the paradigm and our missiology in North America. We start with a church service, try to get some people together so we can make disciples and ultimately engage the city with the gospel. It's missiologically upside down, backwards, and it doesn't match the biblical paradigm of what it looks like to engage cities. So when we got to Vegas... We didn't have a church, so we started engaging the city. The first 13 families I led to Christ, I led to Christ coaching Little League Baseball. Nobody taught me that in seminary, but when you get to a place and you have no church, you got to do what you got to do, right? So we start coaching Little League Baseball, led people to Christ that way. First 11 months, made 185 disciples, and after we'd made 185 disciples, then launched the church with that gathering of people that God had birthed together out of that city. For the last 22 years, that's what I've given my life to do. We've now seen over 5,000 people baptized into that fellowship in Las Vegas. God's given me the privilege uh, by leading that fellowship to launch. We've launched now 80 churches out of our church in the Western United States. We've sent 400 people out of our fellowship to join in God's activity of planting churches. We now have 18 families in a pipeline to go to the International Mission Board to plant churches overseas to engage in what God's doing globally. And last March, I accepted the job to be president of the largest church planning network in North America. Oh, one more thing I forgot to tell you is that uh, we started a church planning intensive in our church where we train people from all over the world to come. And we've had 800 church planters that have gone over the last seven or eight years through our intensive of talking about what it looks like to engage cities, make disciples, and see churches born as a byproduct. Jesus never said, go plant a church. He said, go into all the cities, nations, ethnos, make disciples. And a matter of fact, he said, I'll build my church. And I think we have to be careful that we don't assume on our shoulders a responsibility that Jesus said belonged to him. Now, I'm not telling you that so that you know my pedigree. I'm not telling you that so that you can hear the numbers that I've been a part of in a place like Las Vegas. Here's why I'm telling you that. I want you to feel the weight of the sentence that I'm about to say. And I had to share my pedigree with you so that you know that I'm somebody who's given the large portion of his adult life to planting churches. I have given sleep. I've sacrificed. I've raised funds. Uh, we've leveraged our family, my kids, my wife. We've all been involved for, for over two decades of our lives. We have given everything we have to see churches planted in Las Vegas, the Western United States, and among the nations. Here's the statement I want you to hear me make. The church, the local church, is not the goal. I knew it'd be quiet when I said that. It's not the goal. Let me prove it to you. All local New Testament churches die. They all have a life cycle. They're born, they live, they die. If you don't believe me, 
Look at any church Paul wrote to in the New Testament. Any church that got a book deal in the New Testament, all of them are dead and gone. I've personally stood in the remains of the church at Ephesus and the church at Corinth, two churches that once in their heyday were thriving epicenters of gospel activity in the first century, and today they are a pile of rocks. I teach planters all over the country, and I I say, hey, can I give you a word of discouragement? Here's the word. The church that you are giving everything you have right now to plant one day will die. If you've ever visited John's Pizzeria in Times Square, John's Pizzeria is one of the most famous pizza places in New York City. If anybody from New York City says, hey, here's where you got to go eat pizza in Times Square, they'll tell you go to John's Pizzeria. David and I went there last September. We're sitting in John's Pizzeria, and I'm looking around at it like, this is an interesting-looking pizza building. I did some historical research. In the 1800s, it was a church planted by A.B. Simpson called the Gospel Tabernacle that in its heyday was one of the largest mission-sending churches in North America. Ran thousands of people, sat 2,000 people every Sunday. He founded the Christian Missionary Alliance, which is one of the major discipleship tools that gave us A.W. Tozier. And today, the Gospel Tabernacle is John's Pizzeria. If the church is not the goal, what is the goal? Before we get to Philippians, I want to read to you Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9. Here's what it says. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every, if you know this, say it out loud, tribe and language and people and what? nation. You ever been to a mission conference? You've heard that verse. Amen. Like we roll that thing out on banners at the mission conference. You know the problem with verse nine? We never read verse 10. Look what verse 10 says. And you have made them a, anybody know it? Kingdom. You know what Revelation five is, right? Revelation 5 is God allowing by his sovereignty John the Apostle to see into eternity future. Not a hope so, maybe so, we think so, but an absolute eternal reality that is already taking place in eternity future because God exists outside the parameters of time. And when John looked and he saw into the future, here's what eternity is. Eternity is not your church, my church, all on our corners worshiping God. No, eternity is the king of kings, Jesus himself sitting on the throne, ruling and reigning over his kingdom that he has birthed to himself out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And right now, God has birthed his local New Testament church as the primary tool for the expansion of his kingdom in cities and nations all over the world. The reason he gave us the church, not the big C church, the big C church is synonymous with the kingdom. That's the bride of Christ. I'm talking about the little C local New Testament church. The little C local New Testament church is not the end all be all. Here's the tragic mistake we've made. We've relegated the mission to a little department in the church that we call missions. And that's reserved for the weirdos in the church who get the special ops training down the dark hallway that nobody else is brave enough to go down. 
That's for the Navy SEALs. That's the Army Rangers of the church over there. The rest of us just come on Sunday and give our money so they can do missions. Can I make a recommendation? Let's crucify the S. There's no such thing as missions. There's only the mission. And here's the mission. Every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. Now, here's the church. Here's where we fit in. God gave us the local New Testament church as the gathering place to introduce people to the king, the discipling station to disciple them in kingdom living, and then the launching pad to send them out for the expansion of the kingdom. And we've made it all about how many we can keep. So here's the question that I want to deal with in Philippians 4. How do we connect the local New Testament church to the big picture of what God is doing in redeeming a kingdom to himself through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross? Because that's what's happening right now. God is on a mission expanding his kingdom to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation And the whole reason he's birthed our church is for such a time as this. Philippians 4 gives us an example. Philippians 4, if you don't know the context, Philippians, the book, the letter, is a letter written by Paul to a church that he planted 10 years earlier in the city of Philippi. You can read the story in Acts 16. It's the first church on the continent of Europe. It's interesting missiological truth that would help us all with our understanding of the gospel and the kingdom, that the gospel did not begin in the West, in Europe, in the Americas. The gospel began in the Middle East, North Africa, and then missionaries were sent from there to Philippi, the Macedonian call to take the gospel to Europe. And now the gospel is circling through the West. And, and I believe if you, if you believe some, some missiology that it's circling back to finish again, make a complete circle and go back to Jerusalem like the book was written by the Chinese pastors. But this letter is a thank you letter that Paul is writing to the church at Philippi because they understood that when God birthed their church, It was about leveraging their local church for the expansion of the kingdom in cities and nations all over the world. So we'll pick it up at the end of the letter, the last couple of paragraphs, verse 15 of chapter 4. Paul says, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now, here's the verse. If you know any verse in this chapter, you know this verse, especially as a church planner. Church planners love this next verse. And my God, seminary students love this next verse. Amen. My God will supply all your needs. Every need of yours, according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Love the pile on of prepositional phrases at the end of that verse. You do understand verse 19 is not a blank check, right? Verse 19 is a conditional promise to those living out verses 15 to 18. We're going to unpack that here in a minute. Verse 20, to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. 
Amen. Out of those verses, I want to show you three truths that connect the big picture of the kingdom to the local New Testament church. Here's the first one. When God births a church, it's always about something bigger. Did you hear that? When God births a church, it's always about something bigger. Where do you see that? Look back at verse 15. Paul uses this phrase, you Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel. Now, I didn't see anybody in the room tear up, get emotional when I read the phrase, the beginning of the gospel. You know why? Because we weren't there. We don't know what he's talking about. But Paul is writing them this letter, and that little phrase reminds them about the early days in Acts 16 when the church began in Philippi. It'd be like writing a letter from me right now to some people in Las Vegas and saying, hey, do you remember when we were in my living room? And they begin to get emotional thinking about the early days of that fellowship. Paul writes them, and here's what came to their mind. Oh, I remember. Paul came into our town, went down to the riverbank, met a businesswoman, rich lady, made a lot of fine linens. Her name was Lydia. Lydia embraced the gospel there on the riverbank and she took, she dragged, she insisted that Paul and the team come back to her house and they let her whole household to Christ. Her whole village comes to Christ. And then the Bible says that Paul began to disciple these people by taking them out into the streets. The Bible says for many days they were out in the streets engaging the city with the gospel. Demon-possessed girl starts tracking along behind them and persecuting them. And demon-possessed girl gets the demon cast out. They lead her to faith in Christ and upset some business people in the city who throw Paul and Silas in prison. And in prison, you know the story of what happened. Middle of the night, jailer and his whole family come to Christ. Boom, brand new church in Philippi. Didn't fit anybody's version of Saddleback Sam, right? I mean, it wasn't like you could picture what this person was going to look like. You got a rich businesswoman. You got a slave class, nobody, girl. You got a middle-class, blue-collar jailer in his family. Like, you can't pick that out of a homogenous principle and go, here's my target audience. No, the gospel, when it engages a city, doesn't skip over a culture. The gospel begins to impact the city, and the church becomes a reflection of the community. That's what happened here in Philippi. It's what happened in Las Vegas. Three white guys from Alabama, Tennessee, moved to Vegas to plant a church. We have a church now with 54 first languages spoken in our fellowship. It's the most diverse place I've ever seen in my life. It's like a bag of Skittles gets dumped out on Sunday morning. Black, white, Asian, Hispanic, Polynesian, and everything in between. we got to jump start on what heaven's going to look like. It makes everybody uncomfortable because multiple cultures worship differently. You put all that in the same bowl on a Sunday morning, it gets a little wild at times. You say, people speaking in tongues? I don't know. There's 54 languages being spoken. You figure it out. How does that happen? When you start with a city, the gospel is no respecter of persons. It doesn't skip over cultures. If, if the church doesn't look like the city, there's a missiological problem with how we're engaging the city with the gospel. Not every church can have 54 languages, but every church should look like its community. And it's a sad reality today that the local school in most communities is 20 times more integrated than the local church in the same community. It's an indictment against us. But that's what happens when you start with church services instead of cities. When you start with church services, you create cultures that look like and attract those who look like, walk like, talk like, think like, believe like, preach like, worship like, the same culture. When you start with a city, the gospel just births disciples who come together as a family, and it's messy. If you don't believe me, read the New Testament. First problem in the church wasn't theological, it was cultural. Acts 6, two cultures at war with each other because one felt like they were getting preferential treatment. It didn't have nothing to do with the Bible. Somebody's getting more food than somebody else. They didn't like it. 
But when Paul says the beginning of the gospel here, he's reminding them of the early days. But here's what he's also saying. That that phrase, in the beginning, in the Greek text, it means the, the starting line. What Paul is saying is, hey, remember when the church was born in Philippi? That wasn't the finish line. Sometimes we look at the church being established with ministries and programs and budgets and buildings, and we go, whoo, we made it, man, mission accomplished. No, Paul says the church being born is not the finish line. The church being born is the starting line to join in the activity of God. Church at Philippi understood this. You see, here's the reality as we sit here today. We are living in the greatest days in the history of Christianity to be alive. There are more people coming to faith in Jesus today on a daily basis around the world than at any other single time in human history. You didn't hear what I said because if you'd heard what I said, you'd have said something. So I'm going to say it one more time to give you another shot at it. We're living in the greatest days in the history of Christianity to be alive. There are more people coming to faith in Jesus today on a daily basis around the world than at any other single time in human history. And get this, get this, seminary student, college student, God has brought you into the kingdom. God is training you. God is raising you up. God is going to allow you to birth a church for such a time as this. Not so you can have the most dynamic worship service on the weekend. Not so you can have the coolest kids ministry. So you can lift up your eyes and look on the fields and join in the greatest global harvest in the history of Christianity. The early church understood that. When God birthed the church, it was born for something bigger. Number two, when God births the church, he invites us to join in his kingdom activity. Look what it says here in verse 15. No church entered into partnership with me except you only. If you know, if you've already had Greek, you know a lot of Greek vocabulary words. If you've not had Greek, you know this vocabulary word. It's the Greek word everybody knows. Partnership. You know what the word is? Koinonia. In Baptist life, we think it translates coffee pots, casseroles, and donuts. That's that's koinonia, right? Every good Southern Baptist church in America has got the koinonia class. And you can count on them, man. They got food in that room, right? But that's not what koinonia means. Koinonia means to share in the life of another. And here's what Paul is pointing out about the church at Philippi. When the gospel began there, the church was born. They saw an opportunity through the life of Paul to share, to join in God's activity by joining in the life of the apostle Paul. So this church hitched their missiological wagon to Paul and his missionary team, and everywhere Paul went, they partnered. How do you know that? Because when he opens the letter in chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Every time I think of you, I pray for you with joy because you have partnered with me from the very first day until now. They joined in God's activity. Well, how do we do that? How do we connect our church to what God's doing in the world? Well, let me give you three ways quickly out of this text. There are more than this, but I'm going to limit what I'm going to say to this, 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 these verses. Number one, every church should cultivate a heart for the kingdom by praying. You say, oh, here we go. We're talking about the mission Pray for the missionaries. You know, God bless the missionaries out there. 
That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about standing in the gap and holding the ropes through corporate intercession on behalf of the activity of God in our city and among the nations. What a sad, sad day we're living in when we have relegated corporate prayer in the church to moments of transition when we move the band on and off the stage. We don't pray to pray anymore. We just pray to change the set where everybody's got their eyes closed. Well, how are we going to make the change? I'll tell you what, let's do, let's pray. Everybody close their eyes and we can move stuff around. I'm not saying it's wrong to move stuff while we pray. I'm just saying it's wrong to just pray to move stuff. What if we just prayed because we were desperate for God to expand his kingdom in our city? What if we prayed because we were desperate for God to expand his kingdom in our nation? What if we prayed because we knew apart from a movement of the Holy Spirit of God, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will never hear the message of the gospel? That's what the early church did. Church of Philippi was a praying church, man. I saw this in real life in my own story in Las Vegas. We got to Las Vegas in December of 2000, my first week on the field. I got a telephone call from a lady who's now famous in our church in Las Vegas. She was from the Philippines. Her name was Letty Peralta. I answered the telephone, and she said, Pastor, can I tell you a story? I said, Letty, I don't know anybody in Las Vegas. You can tell me any story you want to tell me. I've since learned that's a dangerous offer in Las Vegas. Be careful with that. You can hear some stories you probably shouldn't hear. But here's what she said. She said, I'm from the Philippines, moved to Hong Kong to make money for my family that was very poor. While living in Hong Kong, met an American family, moved in with them, became the caretaker of their home. While living with that family, I became a part of their family so that when they moved back to America, I moved with them. She said, we moved to a suburb north of Atlanta, Georgia called Woodstock, Georgia. She said, we visited a church about six times called the First Baptist Church of Woodstock, Georgia, and I heard the gospel and it changed my life. She said, but then my family uprooted and relocated in Las Vegas, Nevada. She said, I've been in Las Vegas for a year and a half. And here's what she said, honest to God. She said, I've prayed every day that the First Baptist Church of Woodstock, Georgia would start a church in Las Vegas, Nevada. Would you please tell me who sent you here? I'm telling you the truth. Two weeks earlier, my family loaded everything we owned in a green Dodge minivan in the parking lot of the First Baptist Church of Woodstock, Georgia, being sent by that church to Las Vegas, Nevada to plant a church. And none of us knew Letty Peralta existed on planet Earth. 22 years in, all the stuff I've told you, thousands of people come to Christ, 80 churches been planted, working on four continents around the world. We send 42 mission, 45 mission teams a year out of our church, joining among the nations. People ask me, how'd that happen? What was your strategy? Listen, I'm not trying to be spiritual and I'm not trying to be humble. I'm trying to be honest. One lady from the Philippines grabbed a hold of the altar of God and didn't let go until God did what he said he was gonna do. And we, for 22 years, have been riding a wave of the favor of God's activity. You know why we're not seeing God move in our nation today? Because we'd rather talk about politics than pray. Listen, I'm all about the preaching of the word of God. I hope you can tell that when we started our church in Las Vegas, I spent five years, the first five years, verse by verse, expositioning through the gospel of John. It took us five years to finish one book of the Bible. I believe in biblical exposition. But we can also be like Vance Havner if we're not careful. Vance Havner said, you can be straight as a gun barrel theologically and just as empty. And that's where we are. We got our theology right in our tribe, but we're void of the power and the presence of God because we don't need God. We can do church for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and months and months whether God ever shows up or not. 
And when God does show up, we got critics that sit on the sideline and want to pick out everything that's wrong with God showing up. Listen, when you're God, you can show up however you want to show up. It goes with the title. I'm going to get myself in trouble. Let's move on. Number two, every church should not only cultivate a heart for the kingdom by praying, and I'm wrapping this up, every church should prioritize the kingdom by sending. Where do you see that? Verse 18, Paul says, I've received everything from Epaphroditus. Who's that? Well, we think it's something you take penicillin to get rid of. Like I used to have a case of Epaphroditus, but I'm much better now. No, you're going to meet this guy in heaven. You're going to need to know his story. You're going to have to brother your way through it, right? Oh, brother, it's great. Let me tell you who he was. He's a regular dude in Philippi that somebody led to Jesus. They brought him to Lydia's house. They discipled him. One day, they're taking up money to send an offering to Paul. They didn't have Venmo and PayPal, so they said, we need somebody to take this money to Paul. Anybody willing to go? Epaphroditus said, like, I'm no theologian. I hadn't been to seminary, but I can carry a bag of money with the best of them. You say, how do you know that? Philippians 2, 25, look what it says. Paul says, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker, who is your fellow soldier, excuse me, my fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. The word messenger is apostelos. It's it's the one commissioned and sent out. Here's who Epaphroditus is. He's the first recorded short-term missionary in history. They send him out from Philippi to go work with the apostle Paul on a mission team, give some money. Then he comes back. How do you know he came back? Where do you think we got the letter from? Paul wrote the thank you letter for the offering, gave it to Epaphroditus. He brings it back to the church to read it to the church to thank them for partnering. You see, the early church understood it wasn't about gathering and keeping. It was about discipling and sending. At our church in Las Vegas, we joke in our membership process and say, if you join our church, we're going to do everything we can to talk you into leaving. And they chuckle and laugh, and now 400 of them have been sent out to go be about planting churches in the western United States and around the world. Last thing, we, every church should invest in the kingdom by giving. That's what this text is all about. They gave they gave consistently, sacrificially, sufficiently, abundantly. And then you get to verse 19, right after they gave, Paul says, my God will supply you. Here's what that means. When you're a church that prioritizes the kingdom by sending and cultivates a heart for the kingdom by praying and invests in the kingdom by giving, here's what Paul says. You put the kingdom first, God will take care of the rest. Shouldn't surprise us. Same thing Jesus said in Matthew 6. Seek first the kingdom of God. And what did he say? I'll take care of everything else. And at Hope Church in Vegas, we've seen this fleshed out. I was just in Toronto, Canada preaching, and I took to dinner a missionary who was the very first missionary we worked with out of our church in 2001. Our church was three months old. We sent our first mission team to Southern Africa to work in a couple of nations in Southern Africa, lead some conferences there. I worked with a missionary named Harold Peasley there in Southern Africa. Harold's now and is almost 80, and he's in uh, Toronto, retired. He's still training planters for me with Sin Network up there. I took him to dinner, and he reminded me of a story I'd totally forgotten about. When we, our church was about eight weeks old, Harold preached for us to prep for going on this mission trip. And when he preached, I told him before the service, I said, Harold, uh, we're eight weeks old, man. We live out of the offering basket. Whatever comes in is what we got, so I ain't got nothing to give you today. But go ahead and preach anyway. <laughs> so Harold preached. He was preaching first of our two services. He preached the first service. In the middle of the two services, I stopped him and said, uh, or after the first service, the Lord really, in the middle of the first service, the Lord convicted my heart about what I'd told him. And I just got up and said, folks, I know this is crazy, but we're going to give the whole offering away to Harold today. Whatever comes in is what we're giving. 
Two services came, went. They gave $7,000, largest offering we'd had in the eight-week history of our church. I handed him the check and died on the inside. Go to lunch. Me and Harold, my wife, sitting at lunch. couple comes over to the table. Says, Pastor, we were in your service this morning. We're visiting from out of state. We got so caught up in what was going on, we forgot to talk to you after the service. We're from a church back in the east, and they sent us to give you an envelope, and they put an envelope on the table. Open the envelope up, and in it was a check for $15,000. So week nine, I went to our church and said, last week you gave away seven. In 30 minutes, God gave us back 15. And there's what our church learned when we were eight weeks old. You cannot outgive God. We did it again when we were, we just moved in our brand new facility in December of 2021 or 2021. Finally had a permanent worship center, moved in it. And to make a statement to our community was living through COVID, we said, we're going to give away the first $250,000 in offerings. We thought it'd take us three weeks to get there. We got $250,000 in four days. Gave away the $250,000. In the next two and a half weeks, God gave us two and a half million dollars. Now, I'm not saying God is a get to give God. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying, if you'll lead a fellowship, that seeks first the kingdom, if you'll lead your family to seek first the kingdom, all I can tell you is hang on. Because when God finds a channel through which he can be a blessing to the nations, he will pour it out. Last thing, when God births a church, it's for his glory. Did you hear how Paul closed this? He said a lot of good stuff about Philippi, but here's how he closed it. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, thank you for this time today. God, I pray that you'd take your word, and I pray you'd speak as only you can. Lord, I pray for those that you're calling. I pray they'd put their yes on the table. Lord, I pray for those that are on the fence about what you're speaking to them about. God, give them the boldness to surrender. And God, would you raise up a generation that leverages everything they have and everything that they are for the sake of your kingdom being expanded among cities and nations all over the world. And may we see that glorious day when King Jesus comes again. And every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation around the throne. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.